Hello and welcome to Game Night. Let's talk about tabletop games, guys. I'm Dornal, uh, your host. Joining me tonight, as usual, the inimitable, boisterous Daddy Warpig. Hey, Daddy Warpig, how's it going? Yo. Uh, once again, returning our first repeat guest. You have the honor of uh, joining us at the table tonight, Douglas Cole. Welcome back, sir. Thank you for having me. Uh, so we... Uh, threw this together at the last second because you've got some really cool stuff to talk about. Uh, we talked to you last time about Dungeon Grappling, a supplement that you did uh, on, you know, the name. It's a good name. What can I say? And and we're gonna we're gonna follow up on that because uh, you took the demo that you wrote for Dungeon Grappling, where you were teaching everybody how the rules works. And you adapted that to a full-length adventure, right? That is correct. One of those things where, as I was sitting down to do the demonstration, I had committed to doing two two-hour sessions, and I was writing down how I wanted it to go. And very quickly, I decided that let me set up an arena battle was not how I wanted to do it because an arena an arena battle even if it's a great way of demonstrating the rules is contrived. Um, and I wanted the whole point of dungeon grappling mechanic roll one D 20 plus a target number against a difficulty. And if, if it's successful do damage um, there is that it should feel organic that you should be able to mix and match things as, as it happens. And so together a, a brief scenario that would have a series of different challenges. Um, and on Friday morning, uh, the seven players who sat through it uh, completed the entire scenario. Uh, there were some things that I fast forwarded because they didn't really help the two hour demo and it was only two hours. Uh, so they completed the entire scenario and the second group uh, got into this epic fight with a certain monster that uh, because uh, their combination of, of characters that they had was not as well suited. Um, and they, so they got into this big fight, uh, grappling fight, with uh, uh, these, these giant, uh, powerful grappling creatures. Um, and that's kind of where the whole thing stopped. Well, it didn't really stop. I mean, they completed the fight. Um, but it was clear to me that it had potential to be expanded into a larger thing, um, and also that the concept of let's introduce the grappling organically and, and play through it and just give the players a choice. Am I going to smack with a sword or am I going to grapple? Am I going to avoid? Am I going to cast spells? Am I going to hang back? Am I going to engage? And having it be, oh, well, I've just hit him with a sword and now I'm going to grab him. And, and, oh, I've grabbed him and so I'm going to pull him onto my friend's blade and just that combined damage. That's awesome. Yes, that absolutely works, right? Uh, and letting the players be clever and have them be successfully clever exploiting the, uh, uh, the new rules worked really well. And I thought that uh, there was enough um, to, to make a scenario out of. And it also serves as a preview of a setting that I have embedded in the eternally in progress Dragon Heresy role-playing game that's been in editing for a while. And, but it's going to take a lot of money to pull off and whatever. So I had, I had this framework. I have the grappling framework, I have the scenario framework, um, and I've been doing Viking martial arts since last February. And so I have this appreciation and love for the uh, Viking mythology, the Norse mythology. And so I just wanted to throw them all together, and, and uh, it turned into a uh, scenario. 
That's awesome. Um, I mean, you put in the work, you might as well. So, exactly. So, so uh, I'd really like to talk more about the design of the adventure, because when you start describing like a regular convention game or a demo game or something like that, uh, my mind sort of wanders to the sort of railroady um, sort of cheesy premise for a series of fights sort of adventure. Like you even were talking about an arena fight. You know, that's probably the worst example. Yes. And so, um, I'm happy to, to, to just sort of go off on it, but if you have a specific thing you want me to, to, to address, I, I'm also happy to be steered a little bit. So I guess I'll start with like a general question. So sure. what, did yeah, you, what did you learn about adventure design when doing this conversion? So the first thing that I guess that I learned is um, to, to... I was trying to embrace the concept of, of full choice, I guess. Um, one of the things that you see in complaints about, I guess, in adventure paths or scripted scenarios is exactly that, um, that they are too scripted. And so what I wanted to do is provide real choices while still maintaining the framework uh, and the notion that you are on uh, trying to achieve a particular goal, that goal is considered contrived or worthy, is, is up to the players and the game master themselves. Let's assume that they think that it's a good, fun thing to do. That you are trying to get from a starting point, point. Um, and for this particular convention game, uh, the ending point was uh, something where I wanted it to be... Uh, where you could understand why you would want to do it, right? The Lost Hall of Tear, the premise is that this hall has been concealed for a long time, and, and you found the key. That's the backstory, is, is that the keys have been found. Um, the key, there are all of these clues that uh, have been left that will hopefully allow you to, to, to find this hall, and inside the hall, is is the thing that you're looking for and the thing that you're looking for i wanted it to be something where you could latch onto it and say yes i could see why finding that would be important but what i didn't want is to have frodo claim the ring for himself at the end and you say okay and now we're going to have the lord of the rings sequel frodo's the dark lord because all of a sudden the thing that the game master laid out there this is what you're going to go get uh, is, is you get the buzz light. You're, oh, I have got to have one of these. And the players just sheathe the great sword of epicness in their back and say, I'm not going back to the town. I'm not going back to the priest. I'm going to set myself up as king. Now, that could be an awesome premise, but it's also a campaign wrecking or <laughs> let's say a campaign rebooting because it could be epic, right? You know, I'm claiming the Dark Lord, the mantle of the Dark Lord now, and, and, and we're going to go off. But, so I, I wanted to end with something like that, where you're like, okay, these are holy works. They're not valuable because of their power. They're valuable because of their contents. Um, and, that, and so once I've established the beginning and the end, then it's a matter of making sure that there's enough 
to like, oh, I'm going immediately like an automaton from one encounter to another, um, while still being, we are going on a road trip and we have a destination. And, and yet, you know, oh, we came up to this obstacle. Well, what if I want to go around the obstacle? Well, absolutely, you can go around the obstacle, right? Sure. Uh, or, oh, we we've have a shortcut, but there's a risk. Do we take the shortcut or not? Well, in the convention game, I kind of force people to take the shortcut. Because the whole point was to get you to, to a series of, of demonstration encounters. Um, but when it came to the, uh, and I won't, I won't say forced, I, let me back up. You're, you were not forced to take the shortcut in the convention game. What I realized though is I had made the clues so obvious and somewhat purposely, I guess, but the clues were so obvious and relatively compelling that people would just gravitate towards the shortcut that resulted in me changing up the flow of the adventure when it came to writing it for publication rather than for demonstration so that there really was a legitimate choice and that finding the shortcut would not bypass all the cool stuff in the adventure so so it was uh, it was a way both to have the game master be able to say yeah my players are looking bored or they're never going to sit through the equivalent of a month's worth of wilderness travel. So I'll make the shortcut more obvious or the game master. The players may be like, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, I am absolutely not stepping into that holy circle of stones. That's a way to get teleported into whatever horrible thing that my game master can contrive. Hitch up my backpack. I'm walking this. Um, it's sort of the difference between, you know, does Gandalf summon the eagles and just fly to Mordor or are we going to hike for months and weeks across Moria and, and uh, uh, Middle Earth for a while? Um, yeah, some players of, went column A and some players went column B. It sound, yeah, it sounds like your game might break down at a high level when uh, flight is available. Yep, pretty much. I mean, and that's kind of the, that's kind of the general high level bit is what I tried to do is say what kind of choices can I imagine a group making um, and set those out as reasonable predictions of what might happen? But, well, what if the players do something unexpected and you really want to embrace that? Because uh, if you don't, then all of a sudden the, the rails become visible. Um, and, you know, and, a, no, and, a, a roller coaster. Go ahead, sorry. Well, yeah, I wanted to get, I wanted to, I'm glad you brought up rails first because. You, you sort of, it looks like, uh, it sounds like you've painted yourself into a corner where I've got a thing where I want people to travel from A to B, and the journey is what's important, uh, but at the same time, you've the adventure has like specific encounters and specific beats that you want to hit that are typical in an adventure. Like in a published adventure, you've got, okay, and then there's this monster here and this monster there, and it's sort of assumed that the players go to those places and encounter those monsters. So how have you tied together the, you know, the, the beats and the locations with the idea that it's, it's actually the parties are free to explore wherever they want. So, so that, that's a great question. And what I wound up doing is, so in the first case, if you want to sort of consider a flowchart diagram, um, in the first case, basically you had a journey that went from a, to B to C to D to E, and, and let's say that the destination was T for tier. Um, and, but the shortcut 
where you go from like A to B and then you found the shortcut. And so B would short circuit almost all the way to T. And so what I wound up doing, and then bypass a lot of the, the fun stuff, the beats that you want to try and hit. So it was all I wound up doing is instead of having the shortcut end up at T directly at the tower, I just backed it off a couple of steps. And so what basically it did is the shortcut through the field of, uh, it moves you to the primary game board in a way. Um, it'd be like, you know, if you're playing the old game Dark Tower, um, where you have, you know, you move around and you have to move through the different uh, uh, quadrants and eventually get to the tower. Basically what I'm saying is, okay, you're starting in the living room, but Dark Tower game is in the family room. And if you want to, you can role play your way through a pseudo hex crawl with lots of random encounters for as much time as the players have fun. And that gets you to the field of play where the primary guy that was revealed in, the, or the, not the bad guy, the antagonist, the opposing forces, the friction in the system, those, that, those forces are arrayed around the tower because they sort of kind of know where it used to be, but because of the power of the gods' glamour, they can't get there. Um, so there's a defense in depth, so to speak, with different places you can go. And, and you know, if you approach from one direction, you're going to have a certain set of encounters. If you approach from another, you're going to have a different set. Um, but as long as you don't try and short circuit all that, you're pretty, well, you're pretty good. But the, the overland journey versus the shortcut really is how you get from the town to the primary field of play, so to speak. So that's kind of how I tried to, to bypass that. Uh, fair enough. That sort of that sort of makes me wonder, uh, what do you do about players getting lost? Is that a possibility in this game? Let's say they don't pick up any clues, or or they they're simply really bad at staying a more or less northern direction. You know, it, it, it's a real danger, I think. And I guess what I'd say there is either the game master will have to intervene with some divine guidance or something. That's why just throw a pallet in there and he can have a vision or a dream. Um, or, you know, sometimes you get lost. And, and that might be, that would be probably pretty frustrating for both the players and the game master. Um, but so I didn't in, I mean, put in, anything in, in there for a real handhold. In in a lot of like a, a lot of game systems that do hex crawls do have sort of a system for, you know, you you travel it, this, one direction this way, and if you fail your navigation check or whatever, you end up veering off into a different direction, something like that. Um, but but you don't have like full hex crawl rules built into this scenario and and this is this is written for uh, fifth edition d and d which doesn't really have good hex crawl rules either that 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 is correct and and part of that is going to be based on the 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 assumption that it was a demonstration scenario and that and people were going to move through it um you know i suppose one thing that one could do um is is let's say that the players miss the clues to um, the shortcut. Well, if they've really missed the clues to the shortcut, then they never really found the shortcut. And so one could stumble across 
a, a new shortcut location. Stumble across meeting the GM, just drops it there in front of them and says, oh, look, a pathway that leads off the, to a sign that says shortcut here. Um, it's fiat. It's, it's definitely the heavy hand of the GM moving the plot along. Um, but, Which you know, if it's probably the, okay in a, like a convention game setting where you're doing a one shot. It's, it's, and, and, and there I was even more blatant um, than, than this game calls for. But, you know, you could, you could drop that in there. Um, but, but, yeah, but it's, 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 it's possible that the but, but players the, could the, get lost or wander off, yeah. The, the adventure that you, you wrote is, is it geared more towards dropping it into an existing campaign or is it geared more towards another, doing another demo session or a convention session? I think it. I wanted it to be accessible, so it is. It is designed to be uh, able to be dropped into it to a campaign. I didn't. Uh, it, it's interesting. If you read through it, you're like, "Well, my my setting doesn't fit this," um, but it could, right? I mean, it, it's you know, I've written it with enough hooks, and the analogy that I like to use is it's a, is a pegboard, um, and. Uh, the uh, the pegboard is is all the different bits of fiction or, or or backstory that I've dropped in there, and those are replaceable, right? Uh, the the tear is the god of war, justice, and law. So if you have an analog towards that, you file off the tear and you put in the whoever it is, right? The uh, the the war pig, the just you know the god of vengeance and law or whatever. Um, <laughs> the the sure why right? why not? Um, so you file that off, and and you know going off into some unnamed place in the cold mountains well anywhere will do for that um and you know i have the fae the fairies being uh, um like the evil cruel wicked fairies of legend not the disney fairies of tralala um and so i've got the fae uh being the, the primary antagonist here and and that's relatively you could substitute out your antagonist of choice you know the overall structure though here you have a journey here you have a physical challenge here you have uh, a bit of a puzzle uh here you have a physical or emotional sacrifice because tear is the god of sacrifice so all requires um uh strength and sacrifice elements are portable and so with a bit of work with the file uh you could drop it into pretty much any campaign um but i didn't want to leave it all as an exercise to the reader and I do have a setting and I do have uh, an implied background and I do have something that hopefully makes it compelling enough that people are going to want to go on this particular side quest, um, so to speak. Uh, and that's really ultimately, I think, how this is, right? This is not an adventure path. It is not a campaign. Um, it is a journey of relatively epic result, finding writings of an actual god. Uh, and rediscovering this this stronghold. Um, that it, it's it's something that you add to your resume, so to speak. It's part of your story of 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 being hero. Um, and you know, like like all uh, like all good stories, to borrow a line from Spider Man, it starts with a girl, um, but the girl turns out to be a, a fae in disguise, and she wipes out a different party of adventurers and, and that. Other guys managed to outwit. So there's enough backstory. Actually, it's, it's, if I really wanted to do it, what I would have wound up doing is having the bit that was backstory be a lead-in adventure so that the actual party could 
find the twos tack and the, the, the key. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, so it's, uh, it is something where you have to balance the, well, what happens if they wander off path? Um, but uh, the way that I've sort of done it in the game is to say, look, there's enough hints and legends and stories about this place that the, the priesthood of Tyr knows more or less where it is. The problem is, is that the power of, of the god is so strong that unless you have kind of the, the de secret decoder ring, you simply can't find it. You could walk all over up and down the tower and never find the entrance unless you have the key. So, so from that perspective, you could even say that the players are operating from a map. You need to go here. You need to end up here. And it's not finding here. It's that the particular location, the entrance to the tower or whatever, is, is the hard part, is, is not finding the general field of play, it's finding the door. Um, and so that's probably how you could hand wave it in a way that is uh, not frustrating, um, but at the same time doesn't short circuit any of the real challenges. It, yeah, it sounds like you, you've sort of turned the traditional adventure on its head where typically there's a thing that you want to get and it's in this dungeon and you find the dungeon and you sort of the, the challenge is to work your way through the dungeon. Instead, you know, the, the reward is sort of the destination. In a way, I think that that's true. And, and one of the, the clever things that the Gumshoe engine did um, is to recognize that in a lot of popular fiction, the clues are going to come. It's what you do with them that matters. And from a certain perspective analogy there. I don't know that it was purposeful as I was writing it, but the, I think it was in the back of my mind is, is that, you know, the, the players are going to get to the tower, um, you hope. And so it's the, you know, you know you're going from Maine to California. It's the journey that's the hard part. And you may have to take some detours and you may have a blizzard. You may have to survive the blizzard and you may encounter some bandits and you can either bypass those or kill them or whatever. Um, so there are things that can happen along the way and those are cool, but you know that you're going to San Diego and you know where San Diego is. But once you get to San Diego, then you need to say, okay, well, we sort of have an address. And then it becomes a matter of getting to the place and, and realizing what you have to do with the information that you have. Um, and if you can figure that out, then you're good to go. I love that that you could probably take this adventure and also use it to demo a hex crawling system, like a, like a proper travel system for D and D. Yes, and the the wilderness travel sub chapter, right? I have I have a two page dungeon grappling quick start that gives the basics of that, but I also have some bits on on wilderness travel and i took out all of the stuff having to do with summer <laughs> and just kept it to, to freezing to death and and, uh, and and blizzards and stuff um but i had written a, a a reasonably um uh section from my uh game uh on moving through wilderness because it's just the 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 environment is a threat um, and 
you know, with the presence of magic, it's somewhat less of a threat, but not entirely. Um, and the, the sense of I am moving through an area that just doesn't care whether or not I exist, right? It, it's the, the, the forest doesn't care whether or not you live or die. Uh, the weather doesn't care whether or not you live or die. It's something that you have to prepare for um, and, be, and to deal with it. And it provides a level of a different kind of challenge. And if that's the kind of thing that you like, if you want to try the hex crawl, then there's a limited version of that in, in the scenario. It would be fairly easy to expand it into a system with multiple interla interlacing charts. Uh, um, um, but those charts would have to be filled out specific to, to one setting. Right. If if here over here is the lizard folk and over here is the fae and goblins and up here is really dominated by an ancient black dragon that chews at the roots of, of Yggdrasil. Um, those uh, uh, that ecosystem, so to speak, is going to flavor the encounters. Want to know how to put those influences into play. And that's the kind of thing that I would have to write. It sounds like a great supplement, actually. Um, you know, it might be something that, uh, that uh, can be a, a follow-on product. I'm always looking for my next one, so. Well, I think you've, you've painted yourself into a corner. I don't think you have a choice on that one. <laughs> Uh, I, and you know what? Speaking of magic, considering the spells that are available at relatively low levels in D and D, uh, 3.5 and beyond, I'm not sure you could make a compelling hex crawl or travel system. Uh, that's that's satisfying <laughs> past level five. Uh, you may be right on that. Um, the 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 big ones. If you look at the stuff that you have to do. Um, the big danger is, is, or sorry, the big impediment to long distance travel is food, wa food, water, shelter, right? It's your class survival stuff. Um, or, I mean, I think there's a, there's, I, I can't remember if there's a create water. Um, there, there probably is. Uh, there's definitely purify food and drink. Um, and that's a big one because one of the big dangers that you run into uh, even if you have the successful hunting trip, unless you've got your ranger with you or someone who knows how to dress game, which is you know proficient in the survival skill, um, then you're going to have a hard time feeding yourself. And it's real easy, um, from what I understand, um, to to make a mistake field dressing game, and you get your 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 nasty uh, deer guts all over your food. Um, well, fixes that right up for you, assuming you have someone along who can cast that spell. Um, and I can't, I, I should have looked this up, but I can't, of the likely that would cast that, which is like bard, druid, ranger, cleric. Um, I want to say that only the ranger and druid have easy access, easy access to that by default, or maybe it's the bard and the ranger, but it's, it's not who you think necessarily. Um, because well, I mean, you know the cleric. Yeah, go ahead. Everything. So they can eventually. I don't know that they can right off the bat. They have to get to a certain level where you can say, pick a spell from any list. But the the place where I set the adventure was really around fourth level characters. 
uh, a level or so after they've picked their archetype. But I, I studiously avoided level five and higher on this one because of the availability of some of the really more game. Uh, game. I mean, really what, you, what I w didn't want to do is have somebody solving every problem with fireball. Um, and, and so I, I wanted it to be a little bit more choosy than that. And, and fifth level, fifth, sixth, seventh level is where you really start to get seventh level in particular is when a lot of the cool defining stuff comes around. So I wanted to avoid that. Um, and the game that I played at Gen Con was set, all the characters were fourth level, um, spot for this one is before you really get some of the epic, uh, okay, that's a plot, a plot point, And I'm going to simply step around it by casting a spell. Um, but I don't necessarily mind a group of characters or players really, um, you know, the differentiation between player skill and character skill being, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fine with clever players. That's kind of the whole point of role playing. Um, but if the players are like, yes, I have the right character for this. I've prepared the right spells. Okay, great, right? You know, I'm, I'm going to go rock climbing today. And so I brought my harness and I brought my rope and I brought my pitons and I brought my chalk bag. And so climbing the, the rock is, is not as hard as it would be if I've done none of that. I prepared and therefore I succeed is, is not a problem. Um, that's a success. Um, it's a success for the players and a success for the plot. So if what you wind up happening is that, okay, well, we've got a month of wilderness travel and we're so well prepared that that's not a challenge. Okay, well, then you arrive at the playing field around the tower, start to run into other challenges. And that's where um, you, could, you could have something where the overland travel part of the scenario is a half an hour of we're so awesome, we just bypass it. Okay. See, that is... Players do, yeah. And I apologize for speaking so much during this episode. Um, <laughs> that is something, that is a skill, a critical skill game masters need to learn is the cut, which is if something isn't going to matter, if players are just going to breeze past it, if it doesn't need to be played out, just skip past it. You know, just say, okay, you guys make it through and you take, you know... <laughs> 1d6 points of damage from various effects or whatever, or, or, you know, not even that. Just skip it. If it's boring, skip it. If it, if it doesn't matter, you don't have to play through it. Like, Correct. if, uh, if, uh, if the players don't make any meaningful decisions, that's when you know to skip it. Right. And, and that was something that actually happened, uh, in two ways in, during the Gen Con game. So I had a system, uh, Brian Renninger over at uh, Castalia House, um, or writing right. at Castalia House, had written, had taken my Dungeon Grappling book and said, I think that I can use this system to represent certain feats of strength. Uh, climbing, dangling from ropes, swimming, whatever. Uh, and he had written up a, sort of a, an, an OSR, a, a, an old D&D specific system for that in a series of articles. And I thought it was really clever. Um, and so I took what he had done and I modified it for fifth edition and I put it in the initial scenario. Cool thing. We're going to use dungeon grappling control points. You know, you get attacked by gravity at the beginning of every turn, you're pulled down and you have to grapple your way up using climbing skill. 
and I thought this was really clever and I had done the math and I said, oh, this is really neat. And we got to it at that point in the first game and I looked at my seven players and realized that as much math as I had done to make sure that it would be fun, done it based on one person, not seven. <laughs> and I, I looked around at the table and I said, I'm about to ask these guys to make a total of 50 die rolls where the only thing they're going to be doing, rolling the dice and saying, how far have I climbed? And fortunately, I am, was aware enough that that is a catastrophically bad idea at the time that I encouraged the thief to make a quick roll, climb it, throw down a rope, and, and we just sort of bypass that bit um, to deal with the aftermath of, of, of having, you know, it's, it's a big table. And when the players flipped it over on my head in rage, I wasn't ready to, to, to unearth from that. Um, so that was the thing is I was like, okay, this is about to be really not fun. We'll skip that and get to the rest of the stuff. And we wound up getting inside the tower and had a great time. Um, kind of thing is that the players really didn't have a meaningful choice there. They had to climb. Um, and the number of roles involved was, was unplayable. And so that night I rewrote it better way. Um, I think, and that's what made it into the adventure. And, and the, the, that way the players get to decide, well, how much risk am I going to take? We're going to, we're going to climb uh, of this 200 feet. I'm going to climb a hundred feet at once. Okay. That makes it a certain difficulty. So we're going to make a single die roll. And if you do well, then the group climbs a hundred feet. If you don't, then you climb less. If you or actually what it is, is you're, you're really rolling not for how far do you go, but how much time does it take to go that distance? And, and so that, Rather than say, okay, I'm going to climb 100 feet, you know, climbing 100 feet might normally take, let's pretend, an hour or two hours. Um, well, if you do well, then maybe you climb it in an hour or an hour and 45 minutes. If you don't do well, you climb, it takes four hours because you get stuck. If you really screw it up, you got people falling off the wall. And that becomes the, the, uh, the players choose is, did you just succeed in which case yay you can pat yourselves on the back or did you have a calamity in which case you have to respond to that calamity somebody falls you have to catch them they they get injured they're dangling from a rope whatever and that drama um but rather than roll the dice for the sake of rolling the dice you're saying okay i'm going to go from here to here what was the what happened during that time uh, and that was a better way of, of resolving the mechanic. It didn't make quite as much direct use of the control point mechanic as I was hoping, uh, but it was playable, and that has its own reward. Did they have fun, though? Uh, that particular system um, has not been tested other than in the, in the writing stage. Um, because it's, so the, ne the, ne and the, next, the next group would have had to climb that, uh, use, use that system, uh, but they got caught up in, in a fight that lasted a while. So um, that, that's something where it is a, uh, a this, the second version of that system I have a lot more confidence in um, because I designed it based on the experience at the table. Uh, but in terms of having it survive real contact with real players and game masters who aren't me, um, that's unfortunately going to have to wait. 
Well, I tell you, I'm looking at this. I'm looking at this uh, preview that you've got here. Um, you've got you've got some amazing art, and and I I love the the what you did with the adventure. And I mention that just because I want to say that I historically don't buy adventures. Um, I, I'm not a guy that collects them. I don't collect maps and things like that. In fact, I do very little of my own <laughs> game design right now. That's something I'm looking for in the future. So this seems really interesting to me because I'm not really familiar with like the breadth of adventures out there. And I've played a few. And I'm rambling. I understand I'm rambling, but I'll get to a point sometime. The I've played, let me contrast two experiences I had at uh, PAX a few years ago, where uh, Daddy Warpig and I uh, played with some friends and family, and we uh, we played two games. We played a couple of games of D&D 5th Edition, back when they were calling it D&D Next, and uh, we played a Pathfinder game. And the Pathfinder adventure, as well as all the uh, Pathfinder um, society games I've played, uh, it was dreadful. Uh, the, just the adventure design was awful. It was kind of a railroad, but uh, also the the made no sense uh, th- stuff like oh, there's a single monster in this room, and and the monster engages a party of four or five people, uh, it, it, where there's no hope, uh, hope, hope, hopelessly outnumbered, and the monster still engages, or. Uh, or my favorite one, this is the one that uh, Daddy Warpig played, where the setup was that a monster was killing the town's livestock, and someone should do something about that. And so we we tried two things. The first thing we did was we attempted to defend the livestock of the next likely target. Uh, and, that the, and the DM looked at us funny, like, why are you doing that? And... Uh, the other thing we tried was to, we had a ranger in the party, so we tried to mm. actively track down the, you know, whatever beast was killing the livestock yeah. and kill it. That didn't go anywhere. Because for some reason, the people who wrote the adventure hadn't thought of that sort of thing. And so this poor DM, who's sitting in a convention on no sleep, um, can only stick to this script. So... What, what was it we were supposed to do in that? I forget. We were supposed to hang out at the farmhouse, and it, it ended up being a werewolf and uh, and uh, some guy who was controlling the werewolf and sicking him on the, the town. But uh, it, he was supposed to attack the, the farmhouse. Like, we were supposed to defend the people when the, the setup for the adventure was they've been terrorizing our farms and livestock. Well, yes. Yeah, see, if they had if they had started off by saying, "Oh, yes, we've had several cabins broken into, uh, and people have been murdered," we would have said, "Oh, okay, let's go to the cabins and defend the people because that's who's going to be attacked next." But if they're if the job is, we want you to protect our livestock. Well, we're going to livestock, yeah. go to the livestock. Uh, it was absolutely dreadful. So um, this is my official uh, anti endorsement. Paizo's adventures are garbage. Uh, I'm sure there's lots of great ones out there because they've printed 100 million of them. I haven't had any good experiences with them. So I, I guess, well, Daddy Warpig, let me put the question to you. I know that you do a lot of your own thing that you do, but but what what do you like out of published adventures? Do you buy them a lot? What do you get out of them? 
That's a hard question. I, I only bought published adventures really for one system, and that was a system I was a, a completionist about. Um, mm. And I played through all of the main published adventures, and they went really well every time I ran them, but I, I have no idea if that's because the adventures were great or if that's just because I had really easygoing players or if that's just because I was, you know, doing a good job of filling in gaps and stuff, spackling over holes. I'm, I'm not sure why the adventures went went well, but my players all seemed to enjoy them whenever I ran them, but I mostly didn't run published adventures. What about, what about you, Doug? I mean, because I guess this is the first one you've written, but are you used to using them and playing with them and, and collecting them? Uh, mostly I'll say no. Uh, that being said, um, well, because for, for, for years and years, the system that I wrote for was GURPS. Um, and that, that is a, uh, a system that you tend to design your campaigns like a sculpture. You remove everything that isn't your campaign uh, from the rules and from the setting, and then you just sort of say, okay, what do I have left? And, and then you go. Um, the, the general conventional wisdom in, in, in GURPS is adventures don't sell. You sell the crunch, you sell the setting book, and then let the players turn loose their own, the players and game masters turn loose their own stuff. So there hasn't been a lot to, to play through. Now, I did play through the Jade Regent Adventure Path, but we did it in GURPS, Dungeon Fantasy. Um, and that was cool, uh, although there were a lot of times when we said, and we're going to go from this place to that place because that's what the nice people who wrote the adventure wanted us to do. Uh, and the, you know, the rails were very obvious um, in, in terms of uh, uh, going place to place to place. Um, you were willing to smile and nod and, and kind of go through. Um, then that was okay, right? A roller coaster, you know exactly what's going to go. You can see the twists and turns ahead of time, and it's still exhilarating and fun. Uh, bowling is a game that is played entirely between two rails if you do it well. Um, same thing with <laughs> golf, right? Um, so, so, I mean, there are, there are situations in which playing between the, the boundaries uh, can be a lot of fun. Um, but in, in this particular case, for, for me as, as an adventure writer, you know, I, I, I've read the Goodman games, how to write adventures that don't suck. I've read, um, I've gone through some things. And I, I really would love to see a, a case where you can bring something that has enough guidance to play it but not so much that you can only play it the one way. Um, and, and that's what I was trying to do here uh, with, with Lost Hall. Um, although with the caveat that I had a very specific goal in mind, which was to let people experience what happens when you have another axis of conflict, the grappling axis, to, to, to win and be beaten by. Um, and so I had a goal in mind in terms of the kind of challenges uh, that, that one would face because, uh, and I'm not trying to drag it back to what I did, but you did ask why, you know, what was I trying to do here? It was a demonstration scenario and it was something that I wanted to explore, you know, oh, here's, here's, a, here's a monster that basically grapples for a living. Um, here is a set of predators that grapple because they're not trying to fight you. They're trying to eat you. Um, and that's going to have a different conflict feel than hit point ablation. And I really wanted to 
have people go through this, this, uh, and feel like that was a broader experience than otherwise it would have been. And we were on our toes more because if I don't, you know, if, if the mountain lion grapples me by the neck, I've got a couple turns before I suffocate to death. Um, as opposed to, oh, don't worry, I have 12 hit points left. You may not be losing hit points at all. And you are still headed towards oblivion and your friends had better help you. Um, and then also one of the things that's in there is a bit of a morale check for some of these creatures. If you smack a predator on the nose, by and large, they run away. Um, they're not there to fight you. They're there to eat you. Uh, and I keep bringing back to that because there's a certain amount of, like you were talking about earlier, here's four or five characters approaching a monster who's just going to stand and fight in the middle of an open space, right? That's just not how. If you have a lone powerful monster that's in its den and it's threatened in the den, it's going to put up a, a pretty nasty defense, but largely to escape, not to fight to the last drop of its blood. That's not its point, right? Unless there's a reason, unless there's some other reason binding them there. But point, point is on this one is I wanted to write something that uh, um, addressed some of the, the complaints and, and was a way of exploring some options in, in this sort of thing to, uh, to, to do that. Um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. This is kind of a, a subject change because it's off the subject of the model you wrote. My question uh, was, do you, do you know what they mean by a um, string of pearls module? I do. Okay. What do you, th have you had a lot of experience either running that or playing that? And what do you think of that kind of module? So I would say that, uh, that, that the Jade, Re Jade Regent Adventure Path, which is probably a 200 and some odd page book, right? I didn't see the actual book, but it's extensive. Uh, it's, a, it's an adventure that starts at low level and you wind up being high level at the end. Um, that one felt like String of Pearls to me, right? It's, it's here's, here's a, a set of encounters or challenges and you go through them and then you go to the next set of encounters and then go, go, go. And there's really no, there, you don't have multiple strands of pearls. And there's no way to jump from one string to the other in the way that I played it. I'll, I'll say that maybe, maybe it was all interlaced and there was a big network of ways to go back and forth. Uh, but I didn't see it uh, in that. And it's fun, uh, but it, it, it is somewhat limiting. And unless you have a game master who's really prepared to improvise and just make stuff up, at which point you're taking the book and throwing it off to the side, uh, it, it becomes like... Actually, you know, what it really becomes is it becomes a, uh, a World of Warcraft expedition where you're off the set of quests. Because that happened to me once. I was playing World of Warcraft. There was a time that I was just playing around with it. And I was doing my thing. And somehow I got somewhere else. And all of a sudden, I was just wandering around this computer-generated landscape. And either I would find an encounter that would crush me because it was level inappropriate, or I was just wandering aimlessly through the countryside. And that's what it can feel like when you've gotten off the string of pearls. So as long as you're on the main adventure chain and either the illusion of choice or the set of choices that you have are compelling enough that you're down that pathway, if that can work, then great. If not, it can get pretty uh, dire pretty fast. See, I'm, um, this is a sample adventure that I heard of. Um, and maybe the person who was describing it used the wrong terms. 
Um, let's say you're you're having kind of a Cthulhu-esque uh, campaign world, and you're investigating a murder. And there are four uh, locations that you can investigate. One's the library at the university. One's the house of the person who got murdered, the murder scene. One's the police that they have, um, you know, that they have all the evidence at or the morgue. And then one is um, a, a bank vault. So each of those four locations have, uh, it, in the way it was described to me, three significant clues that lead to at least two of the other locations. So if you go to the house, there are three clues you could possibly find um, that point to uh, either all three of the other ones or one of the other ones or two of the other ones, whatever, you know, the person who designed it. And then each of the other ones has the same option. And then once you've garnered enough clues from all of them, um, or if you have players who are smart, it'll point you in the direction of where the cult is meeting and you can uh, you can confront them if you choose. That, yep. uh, I, I don't have any experience writing adventures using that setup. And I don't know that I have much experience playing through adventures who use that setup. But just in like an abstract form, just in theory, it seems like that should work really well. To agree. Um, that is, that is, I don't know that that, to me, that doesn't sound like string of pearls. That sounds like you have a, a mesh. You have a starting point, you have an interconnected mesh of, of clues, uh, and then you have a, a destination where pretty much that's where you're going to go. Um, that seems to me like a classic investigation game, right? Where, where you've sort of taken the advice that might come in a game like Trail of Cthulhu or Gumshoe or, or the, the Gumshoe system, Knights Black Agents or whatever. Um, the basic premise is you're going to get the information. It's what you do with it that matters. Um, and to have meaningful choices about what you do with that information, you can go blow up the cultists, you can call the police, you can do whatever. Um, that, that seems like a good structure. The other structure that I really want to play with um, is what I might call instead of a string, a string of dominoes, where you have certain things that are are cyclical or going to happen or or whatever, and and they're moving in, in a dynamic way. Uh, you've got a merchant caravan that shows up every month. Uh, the bandits that live in the hills raid periodically, and there's a semi-random period, but they really like to raid. They really try to go after the merchant caravan. Um, grazing or something where the, the men and women of the village have to shift their paradigm in order to, to, to accommodate the fact that they're, they're grazing their animals. Um, or, you know, harvest, where the entire village drops what they're doing and starts hacking through wheat or planting or, or whatever. Those kind of dynamic interactions where you can enter into this and sort of say, okay, I'm at October... I'm on October 13th, um, and so because I'm on October 13th, the bandits are about to launch a raid. The merchant caravan is supposed to arrive in a couple of days, um, and harvest starts in, in another two weeks. That creates an interesting tapestry with which to interact, and if the NPC motivations are, are done well, then you've created a, a, uh, 
an inter uh, an interconnected mesh that uh, that the players and the game master can explore in a way that really is like a it's, it's not a hex crawl per se, but there's stuff to there's stuff to interact with, and the game master can say okay piece and this particular piece are interacting and because I know their motivations and what they want and, and how they're going to do whatever through a couple quick notes. Oh, this one, this one's all about lust. This one's going to try and, and, and uh, uh, have as many successful romantic encounters as possible. This one's all about money. This one's all about violence and power. This one's all about whatever. Uh, there was a great little card based system. I think in the old Twilight 2000 game where you deal a card or two for primary and secondary motivation it would tell you what they care about and how strongly they care about it oh yeah um, that uh, made an appearance in dark uh oh crap i forgot the name dark conspiracy dark conspiracy yeah it made an appearance okay. in dark conspiracy too yeah no and, and i like I love it that system because it's great and, and actually I, I i totally stole that for dragon heresy i didn't it's not doesn't make an appearance in in uh lost hall of tear but i really liked it because it, it had a a good way to judge what a character is going to do. Um, so the point, the point is about that is much like your matrix, having something where you can stick a pin in any place in the village or the adventure and understand how things are interacting at that time. But also know that, you know, okay, well, the, the bandits successfully raided the merchant caravan. So everyone who cares about wealth and prosperity is now freaking out and they're going to start reacting to things differently we're interested in power who are going to use this vacuum to say, ah, I know what to do. We're going to grab a torch and pitchforks and go into the woods and whatever. So you can, you can sort of have them react to the situation in a, in a more natural way. And whenever you have something like that, you have, as you call it in the true sense of the word where, but it's, it's the, the sand towers building and deconstructing and, and reconstructing themselves constantly. So those are both, conducive to stirring the pot whereas the demonstration scenario that i've written for lost hall is maybe a little bit less so um and, and it is you know it, it it serves a purpose um but it, it's not something where you're gonna sit down with a couple hundred pages of material and say okay this village in this area for a while um and if the players okay here and here's the cool thing about that if the players leave well then you're going to set a new power, uh, a new uh, set of cycles. Well, the harvest still happens when the harvest happens, but the bandits destroyed the harvest the first time. And so there's going to be starvation and you sort of know how that's going to work and you can sort of let it uh, uh, self-assemble into a new piece. So when the players come back, it's, it's not like you've hit pause on the game. Um, and so that's actually where I want to kind of go with my next <laughs> adventure. I have some things in mind. Um, you've heard of that campaign, don't you? Haven't you? Um, the very first module, the DM says, okay, there's a lich. He's about to raise an army, and uh, he will overrun the world and kill everybody unless you stop it. And then one of the players gets a, you know, a bug up their rear about gay marriage, literally, actually gay marriage. And they go out and take over the kingdom and launch a campaign to implement gay marriage if, across the kingdom. And on the day they finally achieve their victory, um, an army of skeletons washes over the kingdom and kills the entire world. And the players, <laughs> why? Why did you do that? Why did that happen? He said, "Look, I told you, and we started this. A lich has his plans, and if you don't stop him, he's going to wipe out the world." 
too many video games where, where the plot point doesn't trigger until you walk up and hit the button, right? Yeah. Right. Right, right, right. So, so yeah, so, so that's exactly, I mean, that, that, that seems like... Yeah, uh, it's, it's uh, really important yeah. that you've got, instead of having like specific plot moments or beats that you want to hit, you make sure that all of the major players or events sort of have a goal or a timing where you say, you know, you know, so-and-so wants to accomplish this, you know, the, you know, the mob boss wants to get at, uh, you know, he wants to take, to take down this person so that he can acquire more territory or more money or something right, like that. Right. And, and so every, just give the game masters the sort of railroading adventures that, that you get, like that you see in the sort of Pathfinder Society games, they don't give the game masters a lot of freedom. And in Pathfinder Society, there's a reason for that. For those of you who don't know, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but it's it's like the World of Warcraft get five people together and run a dungeon sort of setting. You know, the rules are, are the same. Uh, everybody plays a character with a, within a certain rule set. You know, character creation rules are set in a particular way. And everybody who plays the scenario, it's supposed to sort of play the same way no matter who's running the game, Right. But, so there's a reason why a lot of those adventures are written that way, but I digress. Uh, well, there's been a lot of digression so far, so that's okay. <laughs> this, I'm, gonna, I'm renaming the show, guys. This is Geek Gab Digression. Uh, it's, it, yeah, you, you don't want that sort of experience. You, you, want to, you don't want to tie the Game Master's hands into, yeah, well, the players have to go here, and there's this one monster that will fight them even if there's five people in the party, you know, where, where the odds right. are five to one. Um, you don't want that. You want the game master to have all the tools they need. You need to make sure that they have all the tools and, and systems they need to execute the adventure and let the players um, interact with it. And right. That, and, 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 right. That's hard. That, like, that's hard to accomplish, in my opinion. It, it, it is. And, and one of the things that, that sir, I want to talk about sort of two things. One is, is one of the things that I want to do in trying this, this, this dynamic domino file is to see if I can come up with a structure where it makes um, going through a game like that not a, a jaw-clenching exercise in, in page turning, where, where you've got enough information that you can naturally assimilate where it feels natural and organic that certain things are going to be, are going to be happening. Um, the other thing that I do want to sort of do, because I'm, I'm happily let a field in, in uh, Australia and in discussion of game design of any sort, uh, which is why one of the reasons I was so glad to come back on this show is, is that you guys are uh, good interlocutors for, for such discussions. Um, you know, the side quest that I've written in Lost Hall of Tear, since I've, we've basically more or less managed to say that going through this adventure is a linear, boring, railroady, blah, 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 um, it is, you know, I sort of want to not defend it, so to speak, but I'm going to defend it, uh, <laughs> is, is that the, what we've tried to do is say, okay, uh, a, a quest with a fixed goal. In order to get to the goal, you have to get to the goal. I mean, that, that's a, it's a truism, but it's, it is also uh, correct. So what I've tried to do is come up with, a, and there's literally going to be a flowchart for the game master that says, here are the nodes, right? One goes to two, two goes to three. There's a choice at three for path A, B, and C. 
and here's how you can get back and forth between the, the uh, branches. And they do interconnect, um, but they do all wind up at T, so to speak, uh, the Lost Hall of Tear, um, if you go through all of these. And what I've tried to do is in each scenario, I say, okay, let's call it, here's the encounter. Here's the primary challenge of the encounter. This is, this is what the players are faced with. Um, information that the game master needs to know or can know uh, that the players won't immediately know. That's the concealed stuff. Um, and then finally, every encounter has alternatives. Other than Leroy Jenkinsing your way through this thing, what is... What, what, what are clever things that one can do to anticipate natural choices? Like, let's say you have to, for example, cross a chasm. You can work your way over the rickety rope bridge, conveniently provided for your doom. But what if you have magic items? What if you have spells? What if you can fly? What if you can levitate? Well, I've tried to cover that. If you say, well, you know, rather than involuntarily fall into the river below. I'm going to voluntarily fall into the river below. We're going to build a boat. Good, right. That, that's, that's absolutely something that you can do, and, and here's some guidance for that. Um, and in trying to, to anticipate some of the ways to be creative with encounters, I, I've tried to um, make choices to tie in the game master's hands. I've thought of everything that I could, um, and, but by and large, I said, you know, here's, here's a, uh, a direct approach. Here's some indirect approaches. Um, and, and beyond that, here's the canvas on which you're painting. So, uh, good luck with that. Um, and that's sort of how I've tried to turn a linear adventure into something a little bit, um, more open ended in how you, with these challenges, um, in order to, uh, to, to get to the end and, and achieve, seize the MacGuffin and, and bring it back to civilization. Because sooner or later, it has to come down to um, the game master's ability or uh, comfort with spontaneous resolution of situations. You can't detail everything. Game masters have to be comfortable with just winging it. They, That's no matter true. How That's very true. Is. That is very true. And, and it is also true that to a certain extent, um, a group of players is well advised but not required to allow themselves to be gently course corrected. Keeps it fun for the game master, too. Now, if there's a fundamental expectations mismatch, and this is something I've talked about a lot on my blog. Um, but the fundamental core conflict when games and campaigns end is almost always, in my experience, expectations mismatch um, to run a certain kind of game, and the players are going to have none of it. Uh, the players want to play a certain kind of game. Uh, is, is like, that's not what I've, that's not what we agreed to. You know, we were going to play against the Lich King and all of a sudden you guys are off on a social crusade. That's where the campaign is going to have problems. And to a certain extent, both groups 
master is the one who's mostly does all the work and prep and world design and, 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 and stuff. And, and if that's a lot of pre-work, then that can be very frustrating. I think uh, uh, Jeff Johnson likes to basically set up the, the bowling pins and just let them fall where they may. And he's mostly adjudicating situations on the fly that the players get themselves into, at least the way that he describes, I think, his, his, his games. Um, and that's perfectly cool. Some work. Um, especially if you've done work at what you thought was the player's request and you get into a situation where all of a sudden you've got some craziness going on. It's really where you run into expectations mismatch where the is refusing to either refusing or unwilling. And that could be for very good reasons to meet in the middle a little bit, right? Oh, I want to do, I want to do a crazy, I want to do a military science fiction campaign. Like I want to, I want to play uh, star Wars, but gritty. Okay, well, all right, now I'm going to pick up my blaster rifle and run down the corridor. Well, you're going to get cut down in a hail of machine gun fire. Um, so, so maybe you don't want to do that. No, I want to do that because it's cinematically awesome, but you've asked for not that, <laughs> right? We've brought in the optional rules. We've brought in the skills. If you charge down an open corridor into automatic plastic fire, blaster fire, you will die. So if you insist on doing that, the campaign's going to last another five minutes. And actually, that was one of the one of the uh, little tweaks that I thought would have made uh, the the Wonder Woman movie trench scene a little bit better. Uh, there was just a tiny little bit of blocking change where that scene could have worked. Um, but by and large, run into an expectations mismatch where all of a sudden one or two of the players are like, "I'm gonna solo down into the stormtroopers," and the stormtroopers are like, "Oh, look, easy meat, blam." Uh, sorry, movie's over. Um, that's where where you get into some trouble, I think, is, is that kind of piece. So you really want to allow the game master to steer things, but the players are also going to have to, sorry, the game master has to be allowed to steer things, but on the other hand, the game master has to be um, acknowledging and sensitive to, or aware of rather than sensitive to, the game that the players kind of want to play. Um, it's I, not I, necessarily touchy-feely. It, it, it's let's no, all I, I have think, fun together, right? I, I, so. I, think you're, I think you're right about wanting to match the player's expectations, but but there there's a little bit of inequality going on here because, as we all know, uh, the dungeon masters are in high demand, and in in a sense. I mean, you want to make sure that all your players have fun, but if you sit down and you want to run a particular game, you have to put your foot down and say, hey, guys, we're going to do this particular game. You know, and if, if some aspects of it aren't fun, you know, I, we're all here to have fun. We'll try to have fun. But uh, don't expect the type of game to change completely. I, I think that's correct. And the way that I've usually seen that handled um, and, and uh, one of the writers who does a lot for GURPS is big on this. Uh, I'm not always fan, uh, a fan of his particular choices and play style, but the way that he does his prep is he says, okay, here's seven games that I'm willing to run. Uh, and, and I'm going to take my personal favorite examples, not his because he and I don't play the same games. Here's a, here's a kung fu movie action cinema thing. Here's Star Wars but dark. One is a cross of Stargate meets um, Indiana Jones. 
this one's Pirates of the Caribbean with the serial numbers. No, I'm not even filing off the serial numbers. We're going to play Pirates of the Caribbean game. All right. Here are the games that I'm willing to run. Here's the game system I'm running them in. Here's the general thing. The players will be space mercenaries pulled off of Earth in 2020, um, but placed into a, a science fiction-y environment that's really high-tech level. And so at some point, the players in the Game Master will say, okay, these, of these choices that the Game Master is willing to run, the preponderance of people want to play this game. And so you agree that this is the, the theme of it. And having agreed to that, as long as the Game Master is setting up structure and doesn't pull a bait and switch on what they've agreed to, you better be prepared for what's coming. And if you're not willing to play that game, have the grace to bow out. Not interested in the political ramifications of superpowers in, in the world of Warcraft or, 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 or some other environment, right? Um, I'm not interested in that game. So y'all have fun next one around, right? So, um, so to, to bring that around to the original topic, you have to know who you're writing for and, and, and who's likely to buy or download or run your game uh, it, before you even write it. Write your adventure. Correct. So I, I'd like to ask you, Doug. We, we've talked. We've talked about con games. I imagine the con game is your target. But I want to ask you, who's your target? Who who should definitely check out Lost Halls of Tear? So, I, I think there's a couple. There, so a couple couple market segments that I was really hoping to reach. One is the roughly 500 people who are current owners of Dungeon Grappling. For for a way to introduce how that's going to play out to your group. Even if you're not stuck, but you're looking for a fun way to, to bring those, uh, those challenges to the forefront. Uh, each of those people should pick up a copy of Lost Hall um, because it showcases the kind of things that monsters that like to grapple or monsters that will be death by grappling because they're bad at right? Little goblins that run around and you can just grab them and then stick a knife in their head or whatever. Um, people who are, who are interested in, in the grappling concept and seeing a worked example should like this. People who have an interest in the Viking mythology, uh, the Norse stories and, and that kind of stuff, uh, I think will like this regardless of system. Um, and one of my reviewers, basically, you know, one of the people who had looked over the adventure, who had never seen it before, uh, uh, Josh Beckelheimer, is like, this thing is written in a way that, except for little bits of stats here and there, it's systemless. You could take this adventure and put it in any system you wanted to, and the way that the, the dungeon grappling control point mechanic is written, most role-playing game systems, not all, there are several notable exceptions, most role-playing game systems could accommodate that. So if you're looking for exploring a world, the mythology, um, you're going you're gonna to enjoy that. So those two groups of people, um, I think, are, are really my, my target audience. I was really writing it and figured that the people who have purchased Dungeon Grappling will really gravitate towards this. Um, and I did the campaign 
yesterday. So, I mean, it is going to get made. I would like it to be made better, but it is going to get made. Um, I wrote it so that the roughly 500 people who bought Dungeon Grappling, if each of those people, uh, uh, yeah, I could make a good book. If those 500 people, some of them wanted print, and I figured it would be about two PDF to one print. It's actually coming out to one-to-one which is, I think, a testament to Todd Crapper's visual design. It's a gorgeous book. Um, we started with the layout pattern from Dungeon Grappling, and then I said, make it look like this, but here's the themes that I want you to do, and Todd's done a great job, I think, in bringing that to life. Um, but, you know, the, I, so I was kind of, you know, if, if people were more interested in that, you're really looking at something where if 500 people each did, you know, $15, $15 on the average, uh, that's $7,500. That gets me art everywhere where I was going to have a map as art instead of just a map as a map. Um, it becomes a really interesting book. And if a couple more people threw in, um, now we're into swords and wizardry conversions and, and some other things. So I was really kind of hoping that, um, that the target audience was really people who wanted to explore some of those concepts uh, in Dungeon Grappling, uh, as well as just sort of fans of, of stories that are... You know, there's a lot of Vikings-type fans out there, and I'm not just talking in Minnesota. Um, it, it's, you know, you've got you know, Last Kingdom, you've got the Vikings show, which has gone through, what, five or six seasons now. Uh, I think there's a third show out there I remember hearing about uh, that has a strong Vikings theme to it. So there's a lot of that. And the more that I have looked into the history and culture and mythology of, of the Norse uh, people from 700 to 1000 AD. It's fascinating stuff. Um, so anyway, that's kind of where I was kind of hoping to go with, with the, uh, the target audience there is primarily, you know, encouraging people who are interested in the grappling book to, to see a worked example. Um, but, but also there's some add on stuff, you know, people who like, uh, uh, people who might want to bring multifaceted encounter resolution to it. Uh, I think the wilderness travel rules that I put in there are, as you say, they're a step towards hex crawling that is a needed step for, for fifth edition. Um, and uh, that's kind of where I'm going with that. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to point out, and, and I'm wrapping up seeing as, as we've di digressed multiple times here, I wanted to know, I, I saw in the preview packet that uh, there's lots of, you, you, like, your layout is cool, and I mentioned earlier that the art is really great. That, like, once again, you've got a lot of good art coming in. Is there anywhere that uh, people can see that stuff right now? The uh, yes and no, I've, I've posted some previews. The video, actually, the Kickstarter video has two of the completed pieces uh, in it. Uh, my blog um, has uh, uh, the new cover. Um, Juan Ochoa finished the cover within the last couple of days, and Todd put it out there. And so I posted, I just posted, like, while we were getting ready for the podcast, I posted up the, uh, the new cover preview. Uh, sometime in the next two weeks, uh, I've got two more pieces coming in. Uh, one by a gentleman named Roland Warzeka, who is uh, the proprietor of a website called Dimicator. He is maybe one of the finest sword and buckler fighters on the planet right now. Um, he's an instructor. He's an historian. He's an archaeologist. He's also an illustrator of, uh, of no small ability. And he's a realistic um, 
pictures. And so what he's doing right now is he has accepted the challenge of taking his realistic style and applying it to the world. And he has written me a couple of notes saying that he is having ridiculous fun. And, and I'm hoping to be able to show the, uh, the pre-image that, that he uh, uh, threw out there because it's, he's taking pictures of himself as hobgoblins. And here's Oded Hobgoblin. Here's an attacking Hobgoblin. And here's a Hobgoblin about to spear. Uh, oh, that's cool. And, and he's, uh, he's made a montage of, of all that so that he can work the details uh, as, as he wants to. And it's hysterical, especially if you know Roland. Roland's um, going to be coming out in the next couple of weeks. And frankly, if I, hit, if I really smash through some stretch goals, um, there's going to be a lot more of Roland. Um, he is... Uh, he, he, commands a price per illustration commensurate with the quality of the illustration. Um, and it's high in both cases. Um, so, you know, it's not something where I can afford it on a, on a $5,000 project. It, I need more um, for that. So, so that's what's coming. Um, and then John Blessick, uh, an illustration, <clears throat> he got sick. And so there, he had a little lull in progress, but deadline is until the campaign's on. So as soon as the, the last week or so of the campaign, <clears throat> we'll start to see more of that. I do want to highlight, though, that the elite, to the high-level tiers of the campaign allow you to work with me to create a, a player character, a, a character that would be suitable for the adventure and the setting, and have it illustrated by one of my artists. Most of the money goes to the artist. It's a regular commission through me to help raise money for the campaign. Um, and the money goes to them, and you'll get to work with that artist to visualize your character. And if we get enough interest like that, I will absolutely publish those as the book of pregens experience, experience and play and choose from and, and, and stuff like that. So we've got three or four people who have already uh, taken that tier with a, a quarter-page illustration. Um, there is a – if you have lots of money and you like uh, art, then you can get a, a full page. And you can send me a picture of – yourself or your girlfriend or your wife or your child. I want, you know, girl as a Viking barbarian shield maiden. Okay. We can do that. Um, and as long as it's uh, relatively family friendly, because everything that I do is something that I will show to my eight year old. Um, uh, <clears throat> uh, within those boundaries, then, then that's pretty cool. And I'm, I'm, about a third of the funding has come from people electing those, uh, those artist patron tiers. Um, doing role-playing game art is I can't I can't decide if it's more or less dire than role-playing design. I think it's probably equally dire. It's a hard way to make a living, and so any chance that people have to patronize these artists, uh, I I encourage. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I like to design and do these books and to find people who are on the low end of the. Uh, famous scale and and there's a lot of great artists out there who uh do wonderful work for uh, a very reasonable price uh who haven't broken into wizard of the coast and magic the gathering level 1500 2000 3000 dollars per full page well yet who uh you know i'm 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 i like working with them and, and thus far they've liked working with me they like the way that i pay which is instantly and fairly <laughs> Um, <laughs> it, it, well, you know, it's, it's, the thing well, is, is the way that I look at paying for my artists is I want to pay them because it means they've delivered something that everybody likes. 
I'm looking forward to writing that check and saying, wow, you've completed that milestone. You've given me your sketch. You've given me a near final. You've finished the thing. You've uploaded the full resolution TIFF file. Shut up and take my money and let me commission another piece for you. So it's, it's you know, I, I hope that the, the artists seem to appreciate that. They like the, they like the cash flow because it's, it's not, here's 50% up front. And then eventually if you ever finish, here's 50%. It's, it's more, uh, um, it, it's more graded than that. Um, but it's just a, it's a way of doing business that, that uh, I learned uh, doing real business with uh, sourcing $6 million pieces of vacuum process equipment uh, for my company. It's my milestones are good. Set expectations, have them met, and then pay promptly and be great, gracious about it. <clears throat> I, I, I'm glad you said that because I think – because I really like the art that I see so far in, in your work. So like I, you're identifying – competent people who could do good work and you're paying them what they're worth. And a lot of people don't really, don't really seem to get it that you, you can get amazing work. You just have to be able to pay for it and you have to find the people that can do it. Yes. You have to find them and you have to, you don't go to the prom unless you ask the girl. So you have to find these people and, and say, I would really like you to work with me on this. <clears throat> and I did that about 50 times at Gen Con while I was there. And most of those people are out of my price range unless I start to do really, really, really well on Kickstarters. But a couple of them that came back and said, oh, you know, I really like the philosophy that you're approaching this. I'm glad you're not arguing with me about price. Together on this, here's what I'll do. And every now and then, there aren't a ton of people who are sort of meeting in the middle like that, but there are some. And those people get added to my digital Rolodex of people that as soon as I get to a certain point, there's one guy in particular who was really found <clears throat> the image that I was describing to him about one of the big conflicts that I'm not going to spoil at the, end of the at the end of the adventure. He's like, I was like, if I can get to this level and let's make this and do a full page illustration. He's like, I hope we get there because that sounds freaking awesome. <clears throat> but I need the funds to do that. Um, and, and, and that will make the book grow because there's currently not an art hole for it, right? I'm at the point now where the layout structures a certain way. And if I get more money, as you've seen the preview, there's a lot of space in the bestiary where you could throw art. And there's also a few pages that I could insert Doing that would be spectacular, but if I do it too many times, it's going to get into the, you know, you're going to start punching through 64 pages pretty fast. <clears throat> yeah, I, I, was already, I was already thinking that this is actually a pretty large uh, module. Like th this would, there's a, a lot of information here that might make it difficult to run as, as, a, uh, as a quick con game, but it would be great to drop into your setting. I, I think that's it's true and it's not true. I, uh, the one thing that I want to say, though, is that especially as a PDF, and you can't see it yet because it hasn't been implemented yet, the PDF is going to be extensively hyperlinked. So if you're going through and you're like, oh, here's, here's a 12 orc, an encounter with 12 orcs, orcs is going to be in bold and hyperlinked. And so you'll click on the orcs and it'll throw you to the bestiary. Um, and so there's the monster that you need. And it, again, it's not in your preview, but at the bottom of the page, it'll be return to encounter, or it's actually, it'll use the blue stones, 
right? The blue markers that are, are there to designate each encounter. It'll be like one, seven, 13. And that'll take you back to the encounter that you came from. So do that in paper, but the, the, the PDF is going to use every tr or all the tricks that I can on making it a fast navigating piece. And one of the reasons why the bestiary is as long as it is, one of the reasons why the wilderness travel rules are included and not just go look them up somewhere else or invent them on your own, I wanted it to be as self-contained as possible. Um, so got, I, I don't say, oh, go to the, well, I'm not going to refer to the monster manual because it's an SRD product. It's not, uh, it's, it's not an official product. So I couldn't refer to the monster manual. So I had to take the text out of the, the uh, SRD, which is wonderful. I, I, the SRD is, is a great gift to people who want to write within that world and are willing to put it in the work of writing their own fluff text. But, but it, it's, 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 it's long because I would probably guess that maybe a third of the book is Bestiary Wilderness Travel and the two-page Dungeon Grappling Quick Start um, at the moment. Um, and then, of course, the, the last pages, you know, it's going to wind up being an extra six or seven pages of full-page maps um, that I did post a couple of previews in one of the, uh, the updates uh, of what uh, bogey maps, maps will look like. And the other part about this is because it is a digital product with a digital reward, Word structure. Um, each map is also going to be available in like a 32 by 40 inch, 200 dot per inch JPEG to, to drag into whatever your favorite virtual tabletop platform is as a background. So the, and those maps are deliberately somewhat generic so that if you have another forest encounter in a different campaign, you can use those for that easily. Oh, I like the sound of that. So this, this yeah, it's really, it's yes. Yeah, I, I was gonna say this has been a really fascinating look uh, into like people, someone turning it into a business uh, as just a hobbyist, uh, as just a guy who occasionally does a podcast and run a game every other week. Uh, it's really fascinating to hear about all the decisions going into making a product. It's been a learning experience, um, definitely. It was one of those things where when I really thought that the first product that I was going to come out with was this 400,000 word um, uh, behemoth, um, started up my own company. I turned Gaming Ballistic from a blog that mostly does GURPS and I talk about D&D a little bit into the blog face of my company. Um, and setting up the company was an interesting in and of itself and writing a contract for art and for writing and for editing. Um, you know, I, I hired a lawyer to do that and then I had to write a plain English version of that contract because legalese is, is impossibly dense, very off-putting. Um, but, you know, get, getting through all of that stuff and, and saying, well, what is my business practice going to be? And if someone is going to write for me rather than contract. So I had to create a template and, and all the things that make it easy for people to work with you. Um, but also to have the ability to say, nope, that's not how I do things at Gaming Ballistic. This is the way that this is going to go. And if we can't see that, then, you know, good luck on, on doing your thing. And I appreciate that. But like, there's this one artist that I, I, I talked to. Uh, he comes back to me and he says, well, I see how you've written about how you provide art direction, 
that's not what I do. You tell me I want a scene with some characters and some cool monsters in the background and I'm going to create that and you'll take what I create. I'm like, okay, I appreciate that's how you work. I appreciate that you are of a, a place in your career where you can just do that. Art is in my book. My book is very specific illustrations of scenes and images and feeling and there are things that I need in there and I just can't leave that completely open to you doing whatever you want. Now, what may want happening is I say, this is the thing I want to illustrate and an artist comes back to me and says, I don't think that's dramatic enough. I think we need to do something different with perspective or characters or whatever. And I'll say, and this is why I hire artists to do that. And frankly, that's how the cover evolved. Um, I had a very sort of, uh, here's what I want to see and here's this and this, this. And then a couple of my, my artists said, will serve as a good image. But I think by changing where the camera is and doing something a little differently, we can make things more dramatic. And I said, yes, let's do that, please. That's a great idea. Um, because if you're going to hire people with creative genius, you might as well make use of it. Um, and so, but that's the kind of thing is, right? There are certain things that I want to show as long as it's shown, I'm good. That, that was very specific uh, in the grappling book. Every image needed to be grappling of one form or another. Um, and in this particular case, uh, I wanted to highlight certain things uh, on the cover. You know, I'm very particular about weapons and armor and, and the look of the fighters. Uh, I don't care if you have a, a, a female shield, shield maiden or a barbarian. Uh, the weapons can't look like they came out of a video game. The armor has to be practical and they all need to have shoulders and, and thews. <laughs> You need mighty thews if you're going to be a mighty swordsman. Um, but they need to look like they've been handling weapons. And their stances need to look like they're badasses. I want to see a cover and say, oh, look, this person is holding a sword as if they're going to be, you know, Bob, Bob, uh, uh, happy little flowers, happy trees. God, what's his last name? Um, Bob Ross. Thank you, Bob Ross, right? You don't have someone hold weapons of death like they're Bob Roths doing happy trees, right? Warriors train in a certain way. Um, even when they, they're, the fighting style is supposedly more like dancing, like the, the fencing master from Game of Thrones, when it comes down to it, the pointy end goes into the other man, and you want that feel. Talking about people who are serious fighters and the people in my covers tend to be serious fighters and so I want them to look like they're fighting and so what I wind up doing is if in a case like Roland he is a serious fighter he knows what it looks like in, in cases of some artists they haven't seen and handled real fighting equipment I had the opportunity through uh, uh, Arms and Armors Oakshot Institute to handle a 2000 year old Greek bronze sword, you know, I had the gloves on and everything uh, cool. I've handled. Oh, it's, it's cool. Right. Um, and I've had the opportunity to handle an authentic 1200 AD arming sword that was incredibly well-preserved and springy and light, and it would probably still cut you. Um, and a real Viking sword um, of roughly 850 or 900 AD prominent. And 
they're light. They're light, light, light. And especially the Viking, you're getting into an area of history that I love and I'm fascinated with because I have a PhD in material science. So I love the metallurgy of this. Um, but weapons need to be used and they need to be used to kill people. Uh, and if you're going to do that, you need to be fast. So most swords weigh about a kilogram or less, right? Plus or minus a little bit. They're, they're light. They're fast. They're, they're whippy. Uh, a battle axe, like the Viking-style battle axe that we use in class, is maybe 450 grams of metal on, on a thin wooden shaft that's about 30 inches long. And I know I've just mixed units, and, and people are, are going to be... You know, it's about a pound of steel on top of, of maybe a quarter pound of handle. They're light. They are light, 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 and they don't need much whip to embed themselves in a lethal way in a human being. People are fragile. Um, and so when you have a reference image that captures the lightweight equipment used and stand, it stood properly, which is actually the, the cover image that I, I forwarded to you, um, has my instructor is the guy with the shield and the sword. Uh, and two of my uh, uh, female uh, co-students um, are posing appropriately with real weapons and real shields that, that weigh appropriate amount for the equipment used. And so those stances are good as we think that we can reconstruct on how someone with that equipment would fight. And it's different looking, I think, than most pictures of Vikings clustered together in a shield wall. The equipment that we're using, do it that way. Um, there may be other things that you did, and, and the historical record on that is mixed. But when you're dealing with a situation like the full combat that, or the, the group combat that you see there, uh, do things a little bit differently. And so I've tried to capture that in a way that is, is somewhat uh, see it as much. There, there, are some, there are some images that look uh, more or less, but, but the, uh, uh, Juan did a great job of translating the real heft and stances and the way that things are grouped. Uh, into a cover image. And so there is a certain amount of that um, that I went to the table. Uh, and I'm very specific about that kind of thing, right? Uh, Good-looking weapons, realistic stances, uh, people who look like they've worked out in order to, to become good, and uh, backgrounds and stuff that are evocative of whatever's on that page. So, well, uh, sorry, I know this is, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, you that was fun. No, I think it's a. It can be a breath of fresh air for a lot of people because I personally am a little tired of the uh, oversized shoulder plates, the oversized weapons that look like plastic Halloween props. You know, even you know the you know the Pathfinder art styles very anime influenced and uh, to a lesser extent D and D is. And it's great to have uh, just someone going back and saying, "Hey, well, hold on, let's just." Let's just have a regular sword. Let's just have a regular axe. Let's just have a regular spear, right? And and just not not try and ham up that aspect of it. And right. It and I mean once again the artists that you've hired are, are really knocking it out of the park. I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you know, I'm I'm as much a fan of their work as I am for paying for it. So yeah, I, I agree. Um, the thing is, is that you know you don't have to go too far afield to find very impressive real world sets of armor and weapons that were used in real life. They've got axe holes, and well, probably not axe holes actually, but they've got damage to them and they're scuffed up or dense from bullets. And if you were 
of the period where such a thing was a threat. So you, you don't have to go too far afield um, to, to find that. And the other thing that, that one quickly realizes in studying the historical records is, um, now it doesn't really translate to D&D where you just buy chain mail and it's armor class six. Um, a little bit better in GURPS where you can do it by piece is, is that most combatants were not encased head to toe in effective protection. And there were lots of places to bypass that armor and, and do some pretty horrible things to people. Um, and you see that in the skeletons and the remains of the day. So, I mean, it, it's hard to get there with D&D. It can be done. I've tried to do it in, in some of the Dragon Heresy alternate rules, but... Well, that's where you have yeah. diminishing returns at that point. I mean, exactly. Yeah, that's why yeah, most people don't like to deal with that because it's a little... I think the best that you can get is that a lot of people, a lot of OSR types... Uh, make a really good case for the uh, weapons versus armor type table where uh, different types of weapons are more effective against different types of armor, where it's sort of an easy yes. way to model that sort of problem uh, without getting too complicated. Yes, and that's what I wound up doing as, I call it the appendix. Uh, appendix X, appendix whatever. Woohoo, clever. Um, but if there's a section of alternate rules that adds some complexity in, in um, exchange for a little bit of extra uh, storytelling ability or, or flavor. Uh, and a, a weapons versus armor tabler, you know, uh, is a good place to, to start. Um, and, and, and the funny thing is, is fifth edition natively supports this because it has the slashing, crushing, uh, or slashing, bludgeoning, and piercing but they don't use it much. Every now and then you'll have somebody resistant to a certain weapon, but by and large, they're resistant to everything. They're resistant to piercing and bludgeoning and slashing, whereas if one were to not do that quite as much, oh, a skeleton is vulnerable to uh, bludgeoning weapons, but resistant to piercing weapons because there's nothing to pierce all of a sudden your weapon choice matters quite a bit is all, all you need is one word on the stat block and you've changed how the game has to play out. Let me ask you a question. Um, yeah. Do you prefer GURPS style damage like crushing and peeling and so forth or D and D style bludgeoning bladed so on and so forth? Uh, well, the, the two have a lot uh, in common and uh, from that particular question. Um, the, the GURPS stuff has modifiers to injury based on, on that, and, and the D&D stuff doesn't, but it could. Um, but at the moment, it doesn't. Actually, if I were to, to sidestep your question a little bit but still answer it, the thing that I would most like to see is, is eliminating the hit point ablation uh, and going directly to conditions, uh, you know, wound conditions where you get hit with something and you make a wound saving throw or a health roll in GURPS. And if you are tagged, then you have a set of conditions. You're, you're crippled, you're bleeding, you're injured, you're impaired, whatever, right? You have something, a set of conditions that comes along with the wound severity. Um, we'll have to, we'll have to the, talk after the, we'll have to talk after the broadcast is over. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, or, you know, we can do it again because I actually think that the, the bookkeeping nature of, oh, I've got three hit points left, so I'm still good to go. Or, oh, I'm down to three hit points in GURPS and so I'm moving at half speed, whatever. It's the, it's the ability level of your character dictates how people decide, which is why you have the case of 
I have two hit points left. I started at 100, but I'm still 100% capable. So I'm still going to fight like I'm 100% capable. Um, there are ways of dealing with that, and that can be good. It can be bad, but it, it, it influences how people play. And, and ultimately, I would prefer a system that really embraces the conditions rather than the numbers, um, I think, because it, it gets you the, the speed of play impact of, oh, this person is prone. This person is stunned, right? It's just a tag. Gives both the game master and the players enough information on which to make good decisions, but doesn't bog you down in a spreadsheet. And I'm the guy who wrote GURPS Deadly Spring. I'm the one who... Uh, who did the firearms conversion that has, you know, pressure integrated over the barrel and you get a muzzle velocity. So I understand the math and I understand where the math is useful in the back, but at the table is not that place. So the faster that you can convey that information, uh, the better that play goes. And mostly hit somebody with a weapon or whatever you're going to see that are they still looking at me with murderous eyes or are those eyes not so focused because they're stunned that's the only thing that you can really see in the heat of fight uh and if you watch mma right you know someone gets tagged on the jaw and you can see them go out of focus just get a little wobbly their hands droop they've got enough muscle memory that their elbows are still up but you know that they're really not long for this world in terms of consciousness or focus the player the fighter can see that and that's all they need to know they don't need to know he's got three hit points left they need to know that they're befuddled right now and now's the time to all out go at him yeah just like the classic uh hey how wounded does he look question exactly um, and 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 if you can answer that with he looks wounded there's a, a word there's a condition that means wounded which means that you've got an obvious impairment due to damage um you know, wounded, winded, uh, hobbled, uh, confused, right? These are, these are word choices that you can use that if you attach game mechanics to them, uh, it, it becomes a, both a speed of play and an appropriate level of information uh, to talk about in the heat of, of combat. Because one of the things that you get into is imperfect information on the one hand because you're not actually in combat and too perfect information on the other because frequently and a character sheet and you know exactly where you are and you can assess over the course of many seconds what you're going to have to assess in a split second of decision in the world and and as those things interplay that's where some of the wtf moments happen fight simulation to the tabletop what in one turn or he did what to me but because it's a one second combat resolution and people always want to cram in 20 seconds of work into, into, into one turn um, but there, there is a certain amount of, of situational awareness that you have when you're staring at a map table and you see everybody in front of you there's, there's no fog of war there and if you said oh well you need to make a perception roll in order to see the guy who's right in front of you people would be like no 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 he's right there come on I can clearly see him, but most yeah, the classic, people in a fight uh, are right. The 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 classic the classic uh, difference between uh, simulating and and actually just kind of playing a game. So right, I I I think we should uh, 
call it quits there. Uh, this yeah, no, uh, I sorry. That was that, that that was a lot of that was a lot of fun actually. Um, any any last words do you want to say about uh, about adventures or your adventure in particular? You know, I I think yeah, th- and thanks for letting me close out with that. I I think that overall, uh, I would really like to see this particular campaign hit this $6,000 stretch goal. I'd obviously love to see it hit the $16,000 uh, range, but check it out. It's going to be a good-looking book. I think it brings a lot to the table. I think it uh, has some bits that are exportable to any game that you play. Um, I am very proud of the two-page Dungeon Grappling Quick Start that's at the end where it gives you everything that you need to enhance your, your grappling ground game, so to speak, in Dungeons & Dragons without being... Um, you can grapple, you can counter grapple, um, you can injure somebody with a grapple. Uh, and there's one or two other things that you can do that are your basic stuff that you're going to want to do and have monsters do to you. And then if you want more, there's the dungeon grappling book. Um, but the Kickstarter is funded. So at this point, there's very little risk and you've seen the product, right? You could run that adventure tomorrow if I emailed you the maps, right? Oh, absolutely. So, so it's ready. This is not, not a project that is a risk of I'm going to wait a year for this. It's a matter of the artists finishing their work. Uh, if I get a bit more money, I will commission more art, let them do it. I've got enough artists that it really shouldn't take more than a month to put everything together. And then you're going to get your PDF. It's going to go to press. Um, it's going to go to proof. And as my backers, you'll have a preliminary copy. You'll email me you know, shouldn't this be spelled differently or what if this? And I'll make corrections based on that feedback. It's what I did with Dungeon Grappling. Uh, and then we'll integrate that into the final, uh, once I see the proof copy, we'll integrate those changes into the final piece. And then the, uh, we'll start uh, uh, distributing physical copy. Uh, I was two or three months early Dungeon Grappling. And the only reason why I wouldn't have that same schedule uh, is if things become so awesome in the end of the Kickstarter that I can do more, um, and uh, and I'm waiting for 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 sure, art. Sure. But by and large, we're, we're we're in a good place, right? We're in a good place. We funded uh, a little bit more money, and I'll be able to uh, uh, going to a, a little bit more superior uh, third party producer uh, if I can get 350, 375 physical copies ordered, which at like 120 people which is like 60 physical copies it's it's not in easy reach right I, i'm gonna need 300 people to order uh uh physical copies of the book um and that's not looking like it's uh, uh on track for success but if we do right i mean there's time there's there's 15 or 20 days left in the kickstarter if we can get there i will go to offset print and you will get 105 pound paper right it's going to be something that is going to be a joy to hold it's going to be nice as it is, but it's going to be a joy to pick up and, and flip through um, if, if we can get to that particular goal. And that's strictly based on the number of people who order the book. Um, cool. It doesn't really matter with the month. Yeah, so, so I would encourage you to check it out. Uh, watch the video. Check out the art. Look for some of the updates. And, and consider pledging. And if you have the money to spare and want to encourage some of these great artists, um, and hopefully what's eventually going to be a great company, Gaming Ballistic. I really, I want to make a real run for this. Um, but if you want to encourage that and you've got the money, you know, throw in for some of the elite tiers and, uh, you know, see what that gets you. Um, and so, you know, but beyond that, I would, I would really like to people to check it out and, uh, 
uh, try and run it. Tell me what I did right. Tell me what I did wrong, and uh, I'll make it better next time. Well, uh, and we'll have we'll have uh, links to your stuff in the show notes on YouTube. Thanks so much for coming on, Doug. I appreciate it. I, I'm just thrilled. I mean, we managed to get through what almost two hours of conversation, and I'm standing in a hotel room in Karat, Thailand. I love living in the future. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty amazing. Uh, we've had <laughs> we've had very few. Uh, interruptions in your speech like you've been almost perfectly clear the whole time thanks to my uh, partner in crime daddy warp pig for joining us tonight most of all thanks to everybody for listening uh and you guys in chat if you like what you heard check us out on youtube youtube.com slash geekgab is where you can find all the shows on the geekgab network including our flagship show, Geek Gab Prime, where we talk about all sorts of pop culture stuff, usually on Saturdays. Our other co-host, Brian Niemeyer, does a show called On the Books, where he talks uh, about writers and gives writing advice. He usually does that in the middle of the week, Wednesday or Thursday. And of course, there's game night every once in a while uh, on Thursday. This has been Geek Gab Game Night. Uh, I'm signing off for now, but don't you worry, Daddy Warpig, we will be back.